0: Welcome to episode 108 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. This interview is part of a series we're doing with the African Studies Association and was recorded at their 59th annual meeting in Washington, D.C.
1: Welcome to the inaugural African Studies Association podcast from the annual meeting in Washington, D.C., brought to you by ASA and by the Africa Past and Present
2: series at Michigan State University. I'm Peter Olegi. And I'm Peter Lim. And our very special guest today is Dr. Fellow Ngom, Associate Professor and Director of the African Language Program at Boston University. Dr. Ngom's research interests include the interactions between African languages and non-African languages, the Africanization of Islam and Ajami literatures, records of West African languages written in Arabic script. Another area of Dr. Ngom's work is language analysis in asylum cases. Uh, His new book, uh, and to my mind uh, a a very path-breaking book, is Muslims Beyond the Arab World, the Odyssey of Ajami and the Muridya, Oxford University Press 2016. His articles have appeared in African Studies Review and other journals. Welcome.
3: Thank you very much.
2: This book, uh, which focuses on the Merida uh, Brotherhood and uh, Sheikh Amadou Bamba, its great great leader and founder um, uh, who was uh, clearly a significant historical and religious figure, uh, has attracted uh, growing interest. and. Um, and you have built in your book upon previous work by historians David Robinson uh, in Paths of Accommodation and Sheikh Babu uh, fighting the greater jihad, who ironically mm. were the guests at our very first podcast uh, in 2007. So it's it's a return to the Marid. Um, but to my mind, you have you, know, you have used them as a foundation, but you've opened up exciting new uh, pathways, which we'll get to in a minute. Reading the book, I was struck by. Uh, not just the uh, very original uh, pathways you're uh, broaching but also the the poetic way in which you deal in fact with the poetry and the songs and some of the chapters, The Ethics of Ritual, Odyssey by Sea and Land and Sanctity of Suffering. It, it really struck me that you're really saying something new here. Uh, what drew you to this topic uh, of the Murid, and, and, and how did you tweak to this missing link on, on the Ajami literature?
3: Well, I have to say thank you very much for this wonderful uh, opportunity to uh, share uh, some of my work uh, and uh, to uh, also thank uh, Professor David Robinson that you mentioned and uh, uh, Babu, Babu and uh, uh, Butchewer, who've also explored Islam in Africa in general and have uh, made significant contributions uh, to uh, the scholarship on um, Muslim societies. I think I will begin from the last part of your question on uh, what I think is really the central contribution of my work uh, and then come to what brought me to uh, this area of research. The first thing that I would say is that I have been impressed by the work of uh, Professor David Robinson, who has been a supporter of uh, uh, my work from the beginning, and who has, has li- who has highlighted in his work the need to engage other sources, sources that are beyond the traditional colonial sources. Uh, Babu has also made the same point. In fact, Bab- Babu notes in his book that uh, is very interesting that most of the scholarship on the Muridiya has excluded Bamba himself. That <laughs> 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 actually Bamba himself, the major actor, the founder of the movement, is actually excluded <laughs> in the scholarship on the Muridiya, Because primarily the scholarship on the Muridiya has focused on the class struggle model. Uh, using a Weberian uh, approach, mostly used in social sciences, and that framed the rise of the Muridia as a result of the destruction of the political and social structures of the wall of society by the French uh, colonization, and that the masses were bewildered and Bamba offered them new, new leadership, and then they all converted to him. So clearly, those accounts of the rise of the Muridia. Did not take into account the religious dimension, the religious dimensions which my work brings in. In fact, the uh, uh, Paul Marty and many other scholars who have informed the larger trend of scholarship on the Muridia was based on the assumption that religion is not useful to explain the rise of the Muridia, and I say that in fact religion is probably one of the most important dimensions that actually led to the Muridiya, and, and I think I begin, therefore, from uh, the suggestions that David Robinson, Babu, and uh, uh, Bouchoe have pointed. The areas that we need to investigate, namely the importance of uh, local sources and the religious dimension. What brought me to the Ajami material Uh, that I study is a long story, both personal and professional. The 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 professional one is clearly filling the gap in the scholarship on Africa, to engage all the sources of knowledge that exists in these societies at least a thousand years before the colonial encounter. And I mean, since Islamization of Africa, both Arabic and Ajami sources have been produced. And I think it's uh, only fair to engage these sources in the same way we engage Russian sources when we study Russians. We engage uh, English sources when we study the English. We engage okay. French sources when we study the French. It is simply a, an irony that it is perfectly acceptable to study the Wolof without of sources, to study the Hausa without the Hausa sources. Study the Kanuri without Kanuri sources. And so that's, that's really the scholarly contribution that uh, I wanted to make by looking at actually the sources that are produced by local scholars that Usman uh, uh, Khan has referred to as non europhone Africans okay, scholars. The personal reason I'm interested in this area is a discovery of an IOU from my dad, who passed away in 1996. And in 2004, while I was at Western Washington University in uh, Washington State, I discovered uh, this uh, document in which he had written that he owed some money to a local shopkeeper in Ajami. I had read the document and I wondered uh, if this was true. So I called my younger brother and asked him to go check with our neighbor who is Fulani, if, in in reality, my dad owed him money, which he did. And it was confirmed that he also had a record book in which he kept his transactions and those who owe him money. And so I sent the money, and then the debt was paid. And I began, therefore, to see that I have interacted with my father after his death, years after his death. And this, my father passed away in 1996. I discovered his document in 2004. And I communicated with him in a language and a script that I had regarded as as unimportant myself. In fact, I had treated him as illiterate. I had regarded him as, he was a tailor. And and I began to realize how wrong I was. And if I was wrong, and I was his son, and how many millions of people like him who've knowledge have been disregarded because of the intellectual tradition that produced me,
2: which defined literacy. And literacy, I think, is a really important point you you make and that people have got it wrong when they've defined literacy in terms of foreign languages. That's right, that's right. And and that's
3: exactly uh, the problem. The literacy is defined as the ability to read and write French, English, European, namely European languages, or the ability to use the Roman script. And only recently then Arabic literacy was added for Sub-Saharan Africa. Well, But beyond these forms of literacies there has been Ajami literacies, like the one of my father, which is, in, in fact, as you noted in our earlier conversation, it's not religious. It's about day-to-day business. Like this debt. Like... He had a journal. I just discovered that he had a journal in which our birthdays were all predicted. Ah. In fact, even the genders (laughs) of some of us were predicted. Uh, And he had names for all of us. Before we were born, he had discussions about the death of his own father. Uh, Basically, all his life was recorded in his, I would say, non-elite form of ajali. I began to look around, and I noticed that he was not unique. <laughs> In fact, he was he was he was not unique at all. Local shopkeepers were doing the same. Who were fuller? The Mandingos were doing the same. And the more I looked, the more I realized how widespread is this grassroots literacy. And so, I shifted toward the Muridia because, of course, I clearly can't study all these <laughs> traditions. And I began to be interested by the songs I used to hear about uh, that are popularized through uh, popular music, through uh, TV and the media, I've heard since I was a kid. And names, certain names, always came up like Musaka, Majjahate, Morkayre. I mean, and, and, and these were just popular names that I heard, but really never knew who they were. When I began to look more closely, I began to realize that there is a fund, a very rich fund of actually written uh, literature that expands from the early days of the movement to now, and that was carefully constructed, targeting the masses. (laughs) And I think that's really what I found very fascinating when Ajami was actually used purposefully as a mass communication
2: strategy what vehicles did bamba use to reach the masses because uh, it wasn't necessarily written was it that's right
3: so these were continuation of the oral traditions blending with islamic traditions using poetry and here want to before i get into the poetic dimension i want to highlight one key uh, aspect in west african languages which makes hearing a central means to convey information and therefore making poetry one of the optimal ways to communicate. If you interrogate West African languages, you would notice that the verb to hear is the same as the verb to understand. Uh Digging a Wolof (laughs) is to do you hear Wolof? What it also means, do you understand Wolof? In Mandinka, it's the same. In Fula, it's the same. So what it really means, is that these are oral tradition, and I mean oral, A-U-R-A-L, which doesn't necessarily exclude written tradition. In these traditions, singing, chanting, recitations, are the primary means of conveying information. And that's where the poetic dimension comes in. And so the Murids, what I found was interesting, was that they used this important already existing, primary mode of conveying effectively information. And they conveyed, they constructed an image of Bamba and his message. That, and they channeled it through these songs, these poems. Using metaphors that are grounded in the local realities, you would hear metaphors of wrestlers. In fact, Bamba is constructed as a champion wrestler. <laughs> <laughs> because wrestling is a very important sport in in Seregambia. You would hear use of metaphors of um, peanut, of course, because most of the Muris are peanut farmers. (laughs) 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 So by using these local metaphors that I call metaphors of fauna and flora, so animals and plants, metaphors of heroes, of local heroes, they were able to convey the teachings of Bamba to reach the farmers, the herders, all layers of society in ways that was not expected, in ways that transcended the vigilance of the French colonial forces. So they could not censor it because they did not, <laughs> they were not aware. In fact, some murids were arrested in 1889 for disturbing the peace <laughs> because they were screaming these, these poems. And, and of course, Marty treated them as Uneducated lunatic. What they didn't really, really realize was that, in fact, they were
2: communicating. And uh, so, in a very, way, the, the yeah. French were being undermined by by, uh, by peanuts and songs. And in an earlier podcast uh, around uh, the trial of Dead and Kamathi, it was the same thing. It was the performance mm-hmm. in Kenya mm-hmm. that challenged the British. I mean, I went to your. Uh, really exceptional panel that you had with John Thornton and Linda Haywood that uh, was entitled um, Literate Africa, The Role of African Writing in Pre-Colonial History. And uh, I took some very fast notes, but one of them w- that I got down was peanut growing. Mm-hmm. But there was a whole lot, because you were talking to the audience about the manifold ways in which a jami is found. And so I wrote down, uh, just to steal a little bit of your thunder, Uh, You know, obituaries and death dates, talismanic devices, elegies, poetry, prose, metaphysics, weddings, uh, commercial and administrative secular records, celebration of horses, uh, the foundation uh, dates of villages and even cursing of Adolf Hitler, uh, satires and road signs. When you think about it, it's like um, a panoply of, uh, of, of scholarly agendas that different disciplines will approach. But uh, so, uh, I mean, it's really uh, opening a lot of doors, I'm sure.
1: And in reading the book, uh, Faro, what struck me was its companion website, because you analyze this poetry really quite exquisitely in the text, but for precisely the reasons you mentioned before, that you have to hear to understand, Almost instantaneously, I thought, boy, it would be really great if I could hear the poetry of Musaka and, and all the other greats you analyze. And then I looked, and there was this website. So I immediately went online. I had the the hard copy of the book in one hand, my uh, device in the other, and I started clicking. And it's a very streamlined website, so very easy to use. And there were the this kind of uh, uh, chanting poetry, very spiritual and with the, the explanation and the, and the transcript. And it really added a lot of depth and meaning to what you were putting down on, on paper. It gave a much fuller uh, experience, I think, for the, for the reader. Um, you've been involved with uh, several digital projects. I mean, you're, uh, you've ha- had an excellent uh, BU project, uh, digitizing an archive, uh, funded, I think, by the Endangered Archives Project uh, of the British Library, and also the uh, Jami in the Senegambia project at Michigan State, funded by TICFIA, if I'm not mistaken, Department of Education. Can you uh, share some insights on the sort of challenges that you faced in digitizing these very important sources and how you overcame them? And also related to that, what other sorts of African language materials
3: should we be di- digitizing, and for which audiences? Thank you very much for this wonderful question. Again, which overlaps really with uh, uh, the previous ones. I'll probably just address a few more here before on the first part before answering this because I feel like they're connected. One of the most important benefits of accessing this Ajami material is to hear voices never heard before. And one of them is intellectual discourses as abstract as polyglossy and monoglossic ideology of language. Does God speak one language? Is is God multilingual? These are serious discourses that took place within the Muslim communities and people took positions. (laughs) And, And it's interesting to see that For example, that kind of discourse is nowhere to be found when you study all the sources on Islam in Africa. Secondly, issues of diversity. Diversity construed as a form of divine mercy. That, that, that in fact diversity is a blessing because God could have created us as plant or trees, but it is because he wanted us to learn from each other that he created different people and different races. And I argue that's probably the reason why some languages lack the word for race. And so, given these ideas that are so important in understanding the way they see the world, digitizing these sources became really my central focus. And, and making them available to scholars. Of course, the first challenge that comes up is what uh, one of our colleagues uh, from uh, the School of, uh, African, o- School of Oriental and African Studies in London, uh, Frederick Lukpe, called the Observer's Paradox. What happens when you go to these communities is a reluctance to show their, their documents because they have been stigmatized, they mm. have been treated as illiterate for centuries. Mm. And in this climate of security concerns and Islam and all these issues that are going on, when you come to them and you're asking them that you want to see their documents, <laughs> yeah. you know, they, they're not always uh, ready to share them. And in one case that's very interesting is that she was in northern Cameroon. Although she could see Ajami uh, advertisements, when she asked people about Ajayme, they said, no, 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 that's, that's only the things that all the people do in some you know, uh, far away places. But it's only when she changed the methodology by recruiting someone who is trusted within the community that he, he was able mm. to overcome the observer's paradox. So I was confronted with similar situations. Mm. And so what I did <clears throat> initially was to create a trust. And that meant to identify local scholars who understood the stakes. And the first thing that I did was to create a network where in each community, Mandinka, Wolof, uh, Fula in Senegambia that I knew, I approached local scholars and I told them that their knowledge is as valuable as the knowledge of Jean-Paul Sartre. And I told them what I really want is that wherever Jean-Paul Sartre is cited, or his work is available. Wherever thinkers of other traditions are available, I want your voices to be present. And that resonated with them. And number two, I also made sure I empowered their knowledge in meaningful, tangible ways, and that is dignified rewards, payments. That is the interview that I conduct with each of them is documented through a form that explains clearly the copyright dimensions. Who owns the documents? They own the documents. They only allow us to share these documents with scholars around the world for, for teaching and research. And, and, they, and they reward it on the same rate that all the scholars I work with outside of Africa are rewarded. And, and I think that's very, very important. And it, it, it really opened up uh, beyond these projects, I, the first, I have to say that the first project that uh, actually led me to do that was your project the, uh, that was led by uh, Professor David Robinson and you and uh, <coughs> Catherine Foley, uh, which was actually the first time that I was uh, on the ground in Senegambia to create that network. Once I created that network, I maintained it, hmm. now maintaining it at my own expense. Mm-hmm. From time to time, when Tabaski comes, the holiday day uh, of Tabaski or Korite, I call a few of them and I send them uh, something, a gift to nice. help Good. Uh, in, in, in mm-hmm. their festivities. And, and, and that has really continued to open doors for me. Uh, and secondly, of course, I applied for the British Library grant that enabled me for the first time, having already established the networks within mm-hmm. the murid areas, easily to be able to digitize 5,400 pages of Ajami materials that were produced from the beginning of the movement to now. And those documents were the first to capture how the Muris actually see themselves, the efforts they used. They purposefully chose to use Ajami as a key means of communication to convey the teachings of Bamba. And I think I think that was uh, really surprising to me that, in fact, my book, uh, which came out of that uh, endeavor, was in some ways not what I expected. What I had expected was that uh, what really made the movement succeed, not fail, was in line with the assumptions that the social structure was destroyed and therefore they needed Bamba. But the documents actually told me no. It was the ideologies of Musaka, who fought important battles and said, We chose Wolof as our language, and Wolof is equally valid as Arabic, just as Aramaic and Hebrew were also valid. And these were not exceptional languages because of the people. They were exceptional languages because they were co- used as a tool to convey divine message. And Wolof is also a language that is used to convey divine message. And these actually shifted the orientation of my, of my book. And I decided that the book will be written from within and will be reflecting these voices. And that's why all these titles are actually central themes that come out from these sources. So we continued, we expanded that, that effort of digitization by creating at Boston University what we call the African Ajami Library. And that African Ajami Library, the goal is to expand the digitization efforts to include all the major languages. We have now added over 1,000 pages of Hausa Ajami materials with metadata. Uh, We have also added about 1,200 pages of Futa Jalon Ajami materials. We have, uh, we're in the, we have received donations of uh, over 6,000 pages of Malagazi Sorabe Ajami materials. Mm. We will be probably by at the end of this semester, we will be having over 13,000 pages of uh, digitized Ajami materials on site that have never been studied before. We intend to expand that so that East Africa and West Africa can be brought in dialogue so that northern part of Africa and the su- southern part of Africa could be brought in dialogue. The goal, of course, is not to study all of these materials, because I will die before I can complete that, but to put the materials online in ways that they will never be lost. We have the basic metadata that is needed to understand the basic concept, and hopefully other scholars will in the future be able to uh, Uh, build on that and and study them. So this is really the state of the affairs for the African Ajami Library and the digitization efforts that uh, we have been involved over the last uh, 10 years.
1: And that's a nice bridge to my next question, which has to do with African language teaching. When you're the director of the African Languages Program at Boston University, which is also where I did my PhD, and maybe it's uh, appropriate then to ask... What are the challenges to and the benefits of teaching and learning African languages today in the United States? And related to that, how can the African Studies Association
3: help? That's that's another wonderful question. Uh, Of course, I will start again with the benefits and then talk about the uh, challenges that African language instructors and teaching face in the United States. Clearly... One of the most important benefits of teaching and learning African languages is enhancing the scholarship. African languages are pathways into epistemologies, into local knowledge systems, into local worldviews. And therefore, if if Greek, Latin are required for those who study Western civilizations, it's only normal. (laughs) That those who study African traditions with written traditions should also study these languages to enhance the quality of their scholarship, to make their obse- their scholarship more comprehensive and more objective. Because otherwise, what happened, and I think that's very uh, clear in my work when I contrast the voices in Ajayi documents and the voices in the colonial sources, you cannot help. But be shocked by the different perspective they offer on the same events. And I think it is important that as we construct and we generate knowledge on the 21st century, that we engage these multiple perspectives so that we create, we create knowledge that is both comprehensive and representative of the people who are being studied. So I think the benefits across disciplines, across disciplines, of studying African languages, uh, central to enhancing the scholarship, the quality of scholarship for people in the humanities, social sciences. Uh, let's just take, for example, the example of uh, the work by Shaffer, Matt Shaffer, who discovered the so-called Pakau book. And that Pakau book of Ajami, what's very interesting there, he clearly showed that this document demonstrates the fine line in the African epistemology between history and hagiography. That the history, as understood by scholars, by Western scholars, is interlaced with the history of the saints. So that, for example, the Pakhau, the villages, were actually constructed as, the, it's the mosque that is first built <laughs> by a saint, and it's the building of the mosque that actually led to the building of the village. <laughs> Etcetera, et cetera, So separating these two is actually not part of that epistemology, because in that epistemology these two are interlaced. Mm-hmm. Another clear, and I think that's very important, it's very frequent in Ajami text, you see dates are written as chronograms so that words like may appear as gibberish for someone who does not know the system. Yet J if you find it in a text, in a wall of text, it's a date. The J stands for three, the Y stands for ten, the S stands for three hundred, the Sh stands for a thousand. If you put it together, you have thirteen, thirteen Anum Hijra. If you convert it, you get eighteen ninety-five. Well, that's the date that Bamba was deported to Gabon. So these are the kind of insights that clearly would enrich the work of historians. But of course, they generally are missed because they, they may be regarded as gibberish because they do not fit the pattern of what is expecting, expected in dating. These are internal dating systems.
2: So interestingly here is the, around the question of the teaching and learning of African languages, you are also able to insert this nuance uh, about the scripts. And so you're adding another yes. layer. In, instead of just learning this in Romanized script, you're able to That's add right. something else.
3: Yes. At Boston University, one, one thing we've done and we've decided that is going to be the hallmark of our program was exactly what you were referring to, is to create a hybrid form of training, yeah. language training, so that our students who study Wolof or Hausa, languages with two scripts, that are written with traditionally the arabic script in ajami and the roman script are taught both scripts so that the students whether they're in political science history anthropology as they go through the training they're prepared to access information in any source that is available in the target language
2: well congratulations on that it's just another step forward maybe i can conclude with just one wider social application of this scholarship and and that's, I uh, understand you've been helping asylum seekers. And so here, you bring your, your erudition, but also your language abilities to bear. Could you just speak to the listeners a little yes. bit about this?
3: There has been a field called LEDO, Language Analysis uh, for Determination of Origin. And uh, it's a growing field, a really new field. And uh, it's a field that seeks to help identify who are genuine asylum seekers from those who are bogus asylum seekers. And it's a system that is being used in many Western countries, mostly in Europe and Australia. It hasn't yet reached the United States. But what's central in this uh, approach is really a continuation of the shibboleth test. I'm not sure, I'm sure you're familiar with the Shiboles test.
2: Yeah.
3: In the uh, Hebrew Bible, uh, the conflict between two tribes, the Gilead and the Ephraim tribes, were actually uh, decided to decide who was the enemy. People were asked who were crossing the river Jordan to pronounce the word Shiboles. And people who were unable to say Shiboles and say Siboles were framed as enemies and people were killed more recently in the conflict in Nigeria we had similar situation where tolo and toro the l and the r being used to identify who is an igbo a rebel and who is not etc cetera, etc cetera. now this is a continuation of that a modern version of this old shibboleth test and there are two phases the first phase is what is often referred to as the expertise phases, phase. The second phase is the contra-expertise phase, and we get involved often in the contra-expertise. The expertise phase is that the government has someone who claims to be a fuller from uh, war-torn Guinea-Bissau, for example, Gabu area, and the person doesn't have any document. It is unclear whether he is from Guinea-Bissau, from Guinea-Conakry, from Senegal, from Mali, from any of these countries where Fula is spoken. The government decides to find someone, an expert locally, who is eligible to work in that country and regards that person as expert. In many cases, these people are not experts. They just happen to be native speakers who come from those countries and are legal residents and therefore can work. And the assumption there is, therefore, a simplistic understanding of someone who comes from a place is an expert of the languages of that place, Mm -hmm. regardless Mm -hmm. of their training. Mm -hmm. And in many cases, these people have left their countries for decades. They do not know the new words. They do not know there's a lot of things that have happened in their target countries that they have missed. When those so-called experts review the case and give their report, the applicant is given the last chance. An external evaluator is sought to give a contra-expertise assessment. And usually what happens, you get approached by a lawyer who is looking, who goes through the peer-reviewed journals and look for scholars who have published in Fula, in this case, or Mandinka, depending on Arabic, depending on the language, and you would get an email and say, uh, Professor Ngom, would you like to help us to review uh, the materials that you've received? that's where we get involved. But once you get these materials, you review the evidence. Usually it, it, it comes with audio recording and a report of the experts. And you vet, you, you review the material to see whether the finding of the of the expert is consistent with the literature, with the knowledge in the
2: literature. So you can help adjudicate the genuineness of, right. of, of, of refugee or asylum cases? Yes, you,
3: you write basically, <coughs> What you do, you write a contra expertise report. And the contra, contra expertise report is, is an objective assessment, not necessarily in favor or against right. the applicant.
2: Oh, of course, yes. It,
3: necess- it is the evidence that is in the file. And what's interesting, you never know really, in our case, we never know really the outcome. Mm. You were never
2: told the outcome. But it, nevertheless, it's, uh, it's an important, it's an important application yes. Yes. Of, of our yes. scholarly work. Yes. and. I mean, congratulations again on that work, but well, also on the book, on the website. Thank you very and much. And so, Dr. and Angon, thanks so very much for talking to ASA Podcasts and Africa Past and Present. Thank, thank, you thank you very much. Thank you very much for this opportunity.
0: Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Digital Humanities and Social Sciences and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix Digital Media Lab. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit our website at afropod.aodl.org. The podcast is also available on iTunes. You can also send us email at africa.podcast.org at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.